Verbal Radio here on KUBU 96.5 FM on Spotify and Apple Music. I'm your host, Verbal Adam. And in the studio with me today is the famous LL. And we ain't talking about Cool J. We're talking about Sacramento's own Larry Lee, who is the president and publisher of the Sacramento Observer. How you doing, Larry? Good, Verbal. How you doing? Man, I'm fantastic. I'm so glad to have you here. I know that we had scheduled you to uh, do the show before. And, and then you, the trees started falling. And the the trees started falling, yeah. and, and, and it was just a lot of nature, a lot of obstacles. But the good thing is we've overcome those obstacles, and here we are together at last. Absolutely. Still standing. Should we play that at a James song? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Larry, it's so so great to have you here. Um, for those of you who don't know, my name is Verbal. I actually am a correspondent for the Sacramento Observer, which is how I met Larry Lee. Uh, Larry Lee is the person who gave me an opportunity to try my hand at writing, um, which is something that I talk about repeatedly on this show, how important it is for people to have opportunities to discover who they might be. So I'm eternally grateful to Larry for that. Uh, some of you may remember Larry's father, Dr. Lee, um, who I believe was the founder Correct. of The Observer. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Sacramento Observer is in its 60th year uh, as of 2023. So we're all really happy about that. Now, I wanted to ask you, Larry, um, so your father, your father founded the Observer. So you know you grew up, and the Observer was a big part of your life at home and, and such. I'm sure. Sure. Was it always a foregone conclusion for you that uh, you would go into publishing and you would you would do that, or did you have other career ambitions and then came back around to? Gotcha. So for clarity's sake, uh, my dad was one of the three founders. There were three: uh, William Lee, John Cole, Gino Gladden. Uh, that started the Observer in November of '62. Um, <clears throat> John Cole is what you would would was what you would have called a serial entrepreneur. He was someone who would have a business in June and might have a totally different business in January. So he didn't stick around the business very long. Uh, and then Gino Gladden unfortunately passed away pretty early into the start of the uh, Observer's history. So the responsibility of the paper fell on my family, uh, my dad, and my mom, um, pretty early. Uh, I'm the youngest of three boys. Uh, my I had an older brother who's deceased. His name is Rod, Roderick, or Roddy, we call him. I have a middle brother, Bill Jr., who has um, always been in the entertainment industry. Um, and so when you to answer your question, when you ask, was it something that I was always going to do, um, early on, I don't know if that was necessarily the case. I think we what did happen for me very early is everybody in the family worked at the, at the Observer. Grandma, aunts, uncles, cousins, everybody. And it was a family business, to say the least. There were other people that we had, for sure, but it was definitely a family business. So we all grew up in it. There's uh, stories and signs probably in print of how I was a young person, nine, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, working at The Observer, um, you know, learning the craft of newspapering. Um, and I did everything. Um, and so that was just part of the, you know, just part of what you did every day. You go to school, you do some work at the observer, you go do your homework, you know, you go play. Like growing up on a farm. Yeah, exactly. Like growing up on a farm. Absolutely. Um, it was about when I was about 18 years old, uh, I had a conversation with my folks. They pulled me aside. I was planning on going and I was definitely, I was going to college, um, and, the conversation with them was, do you think, uh, Larry, that you want to come back to the, pa- to the family business? And I'd always uh, planned on it uh, just for the sake of the fact that it was a fa- our family business. But 
I may not necessarily have known exactly what my role was uh, or what it was going to be at that time. I did have interest in I did have interest in stuff like entertainment. Uh, I was telling you earlier I enjoyed music uh, a lot. I I enjoyed the idea of like filmmaking, um, and so being multimedia was something that you know I thought a lot about for the Observer. Um, back then it was you know TV or radio. Uh, were really the only things we didn't know what the internet was or was going to be um, at that time. But uh, I say that in that conversation that I had with my folks, uh, where they offered it to me as being something, you know, I think in their lives, they were entering a stage where they were trying to figure out what was going to be this last chapter for themselves. Um, and so, and probably how much to invest in me while I was in college. Um and so uh, I say, though, that they gave me purpose uh, in that conversation, because once I said that I was going to come back, uh, I really did start to focus in on, you know, what I could learn while I was in school and a early professional that I could bring back to the Observer. So in my years of co- in college, the idea was always, OK, what can I learn and bring it back to the Observer and and. Um, so, so I did have purpose with that about the age of about 18 years old. And how long have you been the publisher as of, as of now? So publisher, I took over that position in 2015. Um, my dad, I, I had, I came back from school in 1997. So I've been here since 1997 with a variety of roles. Um, but publisher in 2015, when my dad, after 52 years, stopped publishing, stopped being the publisher. At 52 years, he was the old, longest serving publisher in California's history. Yeah, and, and the, the Observer is, I know, I know that the Observer is the longest running black newspaper in Sacramento. Right. Um, and I do believe it's in like the top five of the oldest black papers in the West Coast, right? Uh, it is one of the older ones, but, you know, uh, there's some, definitely the LA Sentinel, um, the San Francisco Sun Reporter are definitely older than us. Uh, and then I think I think we come in third or fourth. It, is, it depends on what you talk to. The San Diego paper was around before, uh, but they merged. There was the voice and then there was a viewpoint and they merged. So, but yeah, but the um, definitely under one leadership for sure. Now second generation for sure. So do you um, think that, uh, you have children, right? Correct. Um, Two have, girls. Have you have you uh, given thought to your daughters perhaps one day? I mean, I think you always kind of think about it. I think my role as a second generation. So when you, when you have a it's a, when it's a second generation business, I think one of the challenges that it, that is present for any business that goes from one generation to the next is how does that second generation um, one continue the not just the legacy, but the passion that the, you know, founding entrepreneur had for that business. Um, That's one thing. Then to prepare it for whatever the succession plan might look like. uh, That's my role. I feel like, you know, I feel like I'm just running a baton race. I have the, I have the baton right now. Um, I want to prepare it for my, you know, my departure I don't know what that looks like. I don't know who I'm going to be handing it off to. I don't know if that means family. I don't know if that means, you know, some other sort of uh, person who is, uh, who sees this as an opportunity, Um, you know, but it's getting it to that point to where it is attractive and is a value. 
Um, not to say that it wasn't a value, but the newspapering business over the last 15, 20 years has been very challenging. So getting it to a point that is sustainable and is a value to me is is mission number one. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. I, I try to be healthy, but tomorrow's not promised to anyone. Um, so I'm just, yeah, every day I'm working at trying to make it as healthy as possible to see, you know, who would be interested, whether that's my children or nieces or nephews or well, mostly nieces because I don't have any nephews, but, um, you know, uh, or any, anybody that is, that sees the value of it. That's, that's why I'm working at. You know, it's a, uh, I got to come in with you, what you said, because you just actually hit on one of the core principles of leadership as a, as a leader of a business, a movement, an organization, or a leader of people, a good leader is always aware that they won't hold that position forever. Yeah. And, and they are trying to not only improve, what they're responsible for, but they also have to plan for what happens after them. Um, and I think I learned that from my dad. His parenting style was, let's just say, controversial. <laughs> um, but he always contended that the reason he would do some of the things he did was to prepare us for what he called the real world. Sure. When when we didn't have our loved ones around us to shield us from that, that people weren't going to be nice and they weren't going to speak to us softly. And sure. people thought he was crazy. But like now, as an adult, I survive and thrive without him because of what he taught me. Because he knew that the day would come that he wouldn't be there. And he never let me forget it growing <laughs> up. He's always like, I'm going to die one day, so you need to be ready, you know? Right. And, um, so hats off to you, Larry. That's like real leadership. See, you know, I knew I liked you. All, you know, it's like it's like you ever meet somebody and you're just like, man, I like that person. You know, from the day I met Larry Lee, I liked him. I appreciate that verbal. Ain't nothing but a thing, man. So um, now that you, you're publishing observer, and you did you did touch on something about um, it being more difficult, you know, having a newspaper um, in the last 15 years. I'm assuming that you're referring to like with the advent of digital news, the internet. Um, streaming capabilities where you don't even have to wait on the time that something comes on now. You can just watch it instantly. Yeah. Um, could you could you tell me a bit about those kind of challenges? Oh Lord, um, <laughs> it's been it's it's been a journey. So I mean, you know, like I said, I came in 1997. Um, I went to San Jose State. So in the late 90s, when I'm at San Jose State, is the beginning of Silicon Valley, right? And the um, you know, the growth of uh, technology, um, the internet, all of that stuff. So I'm in the hub where it's happening, right? Uh, I come back in 97. Uh, one of the first things I say is, you know, at some we're going we're gonna to need a website, right? Um, I'm seeing the landscape of newspapers across the country, and I'm seeing habits of people uh, that are saying we want to get our information for free. The business model for newspapers before the internet was fantastic. It was, I mean, you know, in some instances, you had a, a license to print your own money. I mean, I worked at the Portland Oregonian, um, which was pretty much the major, it was the paper for the state of Oregon. Their Sunday paper was about almost two inches thick with advertising, um, classifieds, all that before Craigslist, before, you know, any mm -hmm. sort of apps and all that sort of stuff. And so, the model was was extremely profitable and and healthy. Um, 
when the internet changed or when the internet came on board, things changed. And there was a rush by all newspapers, not just the Observer, but by all newspapers to get their content to people in their hands on, uh, through the internet. What we did as an industry is we literally kill ourselves, right? Because we created uh, this, this expectation that people could get content for free, right? Which now we take that for completely for granted. Mm -hmm. We don't even expect to pay for any sort of content sure. at all, at least reading content. I mean, you pay for maybe streaming services, but... Like but reading you, news articles online, you don't expect to pay for that. You don't expect to pay and for that. And you avoid now. the sites that hide behind a paywall. Exactly, exactly. So, so we did that to ourselves. <laughs> Again, not just The Observer, but... But The Observer was part of it as well, too. So in 99, we launched SackObserver.com and started doing, just like everybody else, started putting our content online for free. And we had, of course, very unique, special content that you couldn't really find anywhere else. But we were putting it on and we were busting our tails and we had, you know, really some great success on the very early stages of the Internet. And we're doing a lot of the things that... Um, now are, are somewhat normal things like newsletters. We were doing a newsletter back then and all that kind of stuff had great growth. Um, but then financially, the, the, you know, the bottom fell from underneath us because everyone started doing advertising for cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And it was not profitable for us to continue to do it in that model. Um, and even though, so I said we launched in 97, We've always tried to be extremely innovative. So we, were, we weren't the first black newspaper to be online, we, but we were like in the top three or four to go online um, in, the, in the late 90s. We were the first black newspaper to start sending news to people on their cell phones via text messaging. This was before social media. We just knew that people had cell phones and we knew we could get information to them on their cell phones because we internally recognized that cell phones were going to be more valuable than a desktop. Mm -hmm. um, so we've always tried to be extremely innovative. The challenge in from 2000 to 2017, 2020, was in order to do any sort of technological advances, it was a tremendous financial investment. If you wanted to do almost anything, <laughs> the baseline for anything was, you know, almost six figures to kind of do anything that was of substance uh, in, in audience development or, or technological advances as far as getting information out. Uh, it was extremely costly. The beauty of the last few years is a lot of those things have now started to become, you know, much more affordable. Um, because now everyone wants to be able to do it. You're sitting here with, you know, two cell phones, you're streaming, you got, uh, you know, what I, mean? <laughs> I mean, it's like you're sitting here, you're walking, it's like a one man band back in the day. You had yeah. the big speaker and the mic exactly. and the harmonica. And the harmonica yeah, and, and everything. All that, yeah, you're, yeah. Doing, you're doing it all here, sitting here right here right now. So all this stuff becomes much more affordable. And so now um, technology, now we are trying to use that technology to help with what we're doing. It is still a challenge because now it's, it's like, now you're trying to figure out which technology is the right one for your organization, which, um, and then you have to train people and all that other kind of stuff. So, so there's still some learning curve for us, but I think um, when I look at what we've done, particularly over the last like three years, our transformation has been phenomenal. I mean, you know, we've, 
it's it's really hard to equate. In some instances, like our audience traffic for things, particularly stuff like Google search, has has improved almost ten times of what it was before. Um, lots of different areas where we are engaging and, and connecting with our community and still providing the content still. And, and we're providing it for free still, um, but we're finding other ways to kind of be sustainable. And that's, that's a challenge. That's, um, that's a challenge for all newspapers all around the country. I think we have some distinct advantages at being a legacy publication. There's some trust issues that people recognize that the observer has been here continuing to serve uh, our community um, through the content that we're providing and the products that we provide. Um, but uh, it is still, it's not, it's not like I can just click the light switch and turn it on and, you know, all of a sudden things are working great. Yeah, I understand that. It's, um, it, it's really interesting when, when you are a part of an industry that is the subject of an industrial revolution. Yeah, um, absolutely. Like, you know, well said. The, um, I remember hearing this story. Uh, this guy was talking about buggy whips. You mm-hmm. remember they used to have the horse and carriage and, you yeah. know. And so they said, um, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to find a buggy whip today, but you can bet your bottom dollar that the last company that went out of business that sold buggy whips made the best buggy whip you'd ever find. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Um, yeah, so you definitely with news um, – that is something to consider because, I mean, truth be told, like, I get a lot of my news online. And Absolutely. as soon as I see a paywall, like, oh, you need to subscribe or, oh, here's my favorite one, disable your ad blocker. <laughs> no, just disable your news and get it from somewhere <laughs> else that's going to give it to me for free. Sure. Um, so I could definitely see the challenges in that. At the same time, I also see that, that the observer serves a larger role in the community um, than, than, just being, than just a standard news outlet. Because I look at like standard news outlets, and um, you know, in today's in today's news media, in today's news market, sensationalism is a huge thing. It's like you turn on the TV, everything is breaking news. I mean, like literally, they're like, sure. like something you knew was gonna happen for fifty years. Like the sun went down today, breaking news, you know. Um, and so, sensationalized to keep people like constantly on edge, to keep people watching. You got twenty four hour news cycles, um, and if you look at some of the other papers that are in this region, and I'm not gonna call out names, but you look at some of the other papers in this region, you look at the content they produce, it's 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 almost clickbait. It's just like just to get you to read it. And then with the observer though, um, the content is geared to helping the community. Like this is we know this is what you're going through. So we're gonna tell you about how that came to be. And then here's what's gonna here's what's being done about that. And here's where you can go to get resources and assistance for this and this and that. And we're going to tell you the true story of what happened and not sugarcoat it because you need to know. Um, and being in Sacramento, that's such a, you know, it's not wasted on me not being from here because, like, you've got, I mean, just, man, I wish I could have been here 50 years ago, 60 years ago, where you got the Panthers, the Observer, like, all in the same neighborhood, you yeah, know? absolutely. And it's just like that. Mm, it's such a such a thing. So moving forward with um, with media and, and news, uh, where would you like to see the observer go? Oh gosh. <laughs> um, well, some of the stuff I got to keep, I got to keep it to myself. I, I want to broadcast some of the stuff, but here's, here's what I'll say. Um, I think what I, I'm constantly trying to articulate to our team is that 
we are transforming into a digital first newsroom with world-class print products, right? So what does that mean, right? That means um, that we are helping to serve our community where they are. And part of that is cell phones, social media, the like, right? Where people are getting their content and their information. Surprisingly, we still, there's a couple trends that have happened for us as, uh, as we've developed our audience over the last few years. Um, one, we've grown in the uh, 40 and under market tremendously. Um, right, as of right now, more than half our audience is coming from 40 and under. That's a big shift for us as a news organization. Another interesting, surprising one, which I, 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 we haven't yet figured this out, we're still at about 50-50 with our mobile and our desktop audience. I don't know exactly why that is, um, so we're still, we're still working on that. But where we're headed is obviously meeting people where they are with content and information that is unique to them. We're not driven by... You mentioned the sensationalism. We're not driven by um, things that divide our community. I think anyone can create stuff that can divide people. It's easy to tear down stuff. It's hard to build. And I think for us as an organization, we want to constantly be in the building mode, not the tearing down mode. There may be, there are systems that need to be torn down, but the question is you tear them down, what do you replace it with? And I think we're talking about replacing things in, in some instances. Um, but we're always going to lean toward that for our community. How do we continue to build our community? How do we um, build on economic empowerment? How do we build on educational attainment? How do we build on home ownership? How do we build a healthy community, both mentally and physically? Um, those things are things that are at our core, um, and so we're going to continue with, with that kind of content. How we do it, well, the market's going to determine how some of that is, right? Um, but again, I think for us, we're very focused on digital content. That means written stories in the digital space. It means video. It means um, social media. Uh, it means all of those kinds of things that can um, attract people to helping to tell the story of our people and the conditions of our people. So that's, that's, and, and that will take other forms as well too. You know, it's not a secret that we've been working on um, building our, a new facility, excuse me, that I call it a 21st century newsroom that can help um, put some of that vision to action uh, with the technology of studios and a gathering location and all that sort of stuff um, and, and really connecting with the community. Um, so that's, that's one aspect. There's a whole, a whole bunch of other things. One of the things that I know I'm extremely passionate about and charged with is digitizing our archives. Um, the Observer has been documenting our community for 60 years. Our archives, in some instances, are well-organized. In, the, in some instances, are in disarray. And so it is a multi-million dollar project for us to get our archives out of, uh, you know, two-dimensional and put it into a three-dimensional way to where people can find things about their own history here in Sacramento, whether it's their loved ones, whether it's about organizations that they're connected with. Um, and 
And it has to be done while I'm here. And I'm saying that humbly because I, I, I'm saying it because right now I, I, there's a distinct connection that I have to the previous generation of leadership, my dad and those, that I know where certain things are and who certain people are. And I've got to get it out of my head. <laughs> I tell this stuff to my staff all the time. I got to get it out of my head out to somewhere else. And so I'm very conscious and very driven by trying to get that project done. It's a hard project. I only know of one other black newspaper in the country that has even started it. That's the Baltimore Afro. They've been around 130 years. <laughs> and they just started last year in 2022. And they got a major grant to help them start it. That's what I'm hoping that we can do so we can start to do that because in this generation that I'm in right now, I can connect a lot of dots that that if I were, were not here become harder to connect. And so I'm very driven by that. So that's one of the one of the other things uh, that I want to do. Um, you know, some of the stuff we've already started and we started pre-COVID, um, you know, we started with a redesign of the print product, um, not... I don't think our print product is ever going to go away. In fact, it's right now, it seems to be under um, more demand than it has been in, in years past. Part of it, I think, is because of what we've done with it over the last year or so. We've redesigned it. It is a beautiful product. You pick it up each and every week. It is much easier to read than in uh, the previous iteration. I understand why we, I mean, I was here, so I know exactly why we did what we did in years past, but it was always kind of a pain point for me when uh, readers picked up the product, um, not necessarily knowing exactly where to go for, for content. Now we make it much easier for people to read the, the content. Um, it's a little smaller in size, but, um, you know, every week it's between, you know, 24 and 32, 36 pages. Um, it is, it's a good read. If you pick up the paper, um, and again, we're doing all kinds of content online, but if you pick up that paper, you're probably going to read, well, those stories are not going to be found anywhere else. Let me just say it like that. The only other place you'll find them is on our digital platforms. But the reading experience on the print product, I think, is second to none. Um, and and is there's, there isn't anything else like it. Um, we strive literally to have every story that's in the paper to be uh, original content by observer team every week and you're just not going to find that stuff anywhere else and so i'm i'm excited about what we're continuing to do with that last i'll shut up <laughs> is this is obviously a, a significant milestone year for us in our 60th um anniversary and and so you know over the next 16 18 months i think a lot of things are going to be revealed that we're going to um work on that i think are going to be very exciting about what we're doing and how we're um, continuing to connect with our community. So I'm, there's a lot of stuff to be excited about. And I, it's, it's, it's makes it hard to sleep. <laughs> um, but uh, it definitely is stuff that gets me up and keeps, keeps me moving every day. That, you know, that, that's what you call living in purpose. Um, see, they say, they say that you get these four E's when you're living in your purpose. The first E is uh, what you're doing. You do with ease. It, now, I'm not saying the job itself is easy. Sure. But you do it with ease. It's not a challenge for you. You understand how the pieces work. You know where to, you know, boom, boom, boom. Like in the Bible, there's a story about, uh, was it Joseph who interpreted dreams? Mm -hmm. And like, you know, the Pharaoh had had this dream. 
And he called me. He, he had summoned all of his priests, and they couldn't tell him what the dream meant. And he, right. he had brought in all of the witchcraft people, and they couldn't yes. tell him what the dream meant. And then Joseph came in and said, tell me the dream. And the king said, well, it was this, this, and this. He said, oh, it means this. Boom, boom, boom. Right. You know? So first thing you do with E is the second E, you do it with enthusiasm. Like, you sit up at night on the computer. You need to go to bed, but you can't because you're learning more about what you're doing because you're looking at the future of it. You're so excited. You got the enthusiasm for it. You love what you do. Sure. Third E, you're effective at it. Like, you don't just do it, but you do it well. Like, when you do it, people people who see you do it, they're like, oh, that, that's you right there. Like, that's your lane, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and then the fourth E is you do it with excellence. You know, and the observer definitely uh, is killing it on the excellence part. It's like, and I will back that up. Not saying it because I write articles for I Observer. know. Who has this week's cover story? I don't know. I don't know. It's just a <laughs> super handsome chocolate man from Washington, D.C. with a voice like Barry White and an oh. afro like Richard Pryor. <laughs> <laughs> Self-description uh, day. So um, we're going to take a quick commercial break. Um not for those of you on Spotify and uh, Apple Music, but for those of you listening to the radio broadcast of Verbal Radio, uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and then we'll be back with the illustrious Larry Lee. And we're back on Verbal Radio. Uh, I am Verbal Adam here with Larry Lee, publisher and president of the Sacramento Observer. Uh, Larry, you know you you have some really great insights and points of view that really inspired me. I want to I want to say that publicly. Who are you inspired by? Who are your role models? Like who 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 does Larry Lee look up to? Sure. Okay, I'm trying to do this without crying. Um <laughs> feel free to cry. So so obviously space. the 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 two most influential people in my life were my parents. Um both of them both of whom uh I watched firsthand. Um dedicate their life to this community right i mean uh there's a lot of things that people project a lot of things about quote unquote the lees <laughs> in this community which i understand um you know my parents have been relatively high profile you know in a community and have uh, really helped a lot of people um and so people kind of project you know, oh, they've been of great means or they had this or they had that and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But, um, you know, as a young person, I watched the realities of what they were dealing with. Um, oftentimes they gave when they didn't have to give. Um, you know, you spoke earlier about how giving opportunities. Uh, that was what we had oftentimes to give was opportunity and we would bust our tail trying to make sure that those opportunities would consist, con, uh, continue. Um, and so I watched them give tirelessly to this community um, without ever um, speaking negatively about the community. I mean, they spoke real, <laughs> but not negatively about the community. When, when I watched so many people abuse them and abuse the um "Quote unquote," my Steve Maganini, our editor, he's, he calls what we did as we what we do as a ministry. Um, we're not ministers, although Dad was a preacher's kid and my grandfather was a, a Baptist minister. But, but, um, you know the the way in which when you talk about um, servant leadership, watched it firsthand with those two, and so for me, that has been. Um, something I've always aspired to. And, you know, uh, until I'm gone, uh, I'm always going to be their child. 
Um, and so even in my bio, I can start my bio about, you know, the roots of where I am because I'm, I'm not here without them. Um, and, and having learned and watched them has been an absolute privilege. And it's been, you, you <laughs> talked about, you know, leadership qualities that I may or may not have. I've never read any books, Art of War, or any of those things. I've ne- I, I know they exist. I've been accused of, <laughs> of, of applying those principles at times, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't anything other than just trying to serve this community with, at the best of our ability with what we had. Um, so those are the, those are by far the two most influential people, both of them. And they both had different roles. Mom was a, um, she, she managed the, the money and the, um, the admin side of the staff and dad was a visionary and could come up with absolutely any idea that you could ever imagine. Um, and so watching both of them was are, are, I'm, I have, uh, attributes of both of them inside of me. Um, and I'm very thankful for that. There's lots of other people, obviously. Um, you know, uh, nationally, you know, you cannot observe and watch the life of, someone like a Dr. Martin Luther King um, and not have complete, utter, humble humility about the life that he lived. That man died before he was 40. I'm f- going to be 50 this year. So I'm, I got 10 years past Dr. King and what he did, f- you know, in that period of time before his 40th birthday and the way in which he spoke of changing the hearts of man is akin to Jesus. It's, he's not Jesus. We know that, but that sort of, um, speaking to the moral character of people, um, is unprecedented in global history, I think. Um, and other than, other than Jesus. (laughs) Um, and so, you know, the, the life of Jesus, absolutely. And what he did, I've always said, you know, he, there is an anointing on me from the most high. And that has been, um, something that has definitely driven my life. But as far as people who have been on this earth, you know, I watched Dr. King and listened to him, read about him and, um, that sort of selfless life, for the betterment of others is something we all can aspire to. Um, locally, I've got people that I, you know, that I pick up the phone and talk to with regularity. Um, you know, Margaret Fortune, I think, is a, a dynamo in this community. Um, she is, um, you know, a, an educator extraordinaire, but she's also um, so wise, and uh, I just. I, I, I'm appreciative and humbled oftentimes with, um, talking with her and, you know, when she marvels off what I do, I'm blown away because of the things that she's capable of doing. And, um, so I'm very, um, that's someone that is extremely close to me and that I look up to with, with high regard. Um, my pastor, Bishop Parnell Lovelace, uh, Center Praise, um, is, uh, you know, an absolutely wonderful um, friend and confident and brother that I can confidant and brother that I can talk to and, and, you know, leads in a tremendous way as well too. 
you know, these people are doing amazing things. You know, am I doing something? Sure, absolutely. Uh, as I said, I feel like I'm in the race. Um, and I've, you know, I, I, <laughs> I do live by a couple, well, one particular uh, principle that, that dad used to always tell me. Um, he said, God gives us two eyes, two ears, and one mouth so we can watch and listen twice as much as we talk. And that is one thing that I've always tried to live my life by. As I've always tried to listen and observe more than, than speaking about it. Because in some instances, some instances you have to speak up. And there's no denying that. But in some instances, you need to listen and, and, and understand where people are as to why there's a condition the way it is. And then, then once, you've, once you've observed and listened, then yes, absolutely, you know, step in. So... Um, those are those are definitely a few folks that I've looked up to. That's amazing. I mean, you know, from the outside, you you know, I never uh, had the privilege of meeting your parents. I came to Sacramento in 2020, um, but I've heard stories about them. I mean, I've heard I've heard your dad described. Actually, I don't know if you know, I had uh, you were in the office one day in your office, and I was in Wilma's office, and um, I had just uh, I was talking to um, the gentleman from uh, Black Wall Street, the owner of the building. Oh. Uh-huh. And um, he was saying, you know, how you all needed to get together for breakfast. And he had described your father oh. as a giant. Um, and so I didn't know how to interpret that. So I, I was going to ask you, but you were in the office. I was, Wilma. I was like, uh, Wilma, how tall was Dr. Lee? Was he like an extra, extra tall person? Because, uh, you know, you're pretty I'm tall. I'm 6'5", yeah. It's just crazy. I'm 6'3". Oh, verbal. Stop. Um, <laughs> it is what it is. But my lifelong insecurity. But... Uh, <laughs> How are you insecure about being six three and? Well, cause, cause, well, okay. So, so here's what it was. I won. I wasn't always big, like wide, round, rotund. Okay. I wasn't okay. always that. That happened at sixteen. Okay. Um, at and sixteen. So, yeah. Okay. That's and, still and, pretty young, but go ahead. Well, yeah. It was like it was like over one summer. Um, and then what happened was uh, I had always hoped to get six five, six six, because like my hero at the time was like The Rock, and he was six five and like two twenty, and I was like. Well, anyway, um, and so and so, what happened was I got to 6'3", and I'm like, all right, I'm going to make it. I'm going to get there. And then instead of growing upwards, I, I grew around. Um, interestingly enough, my feet never stopped growing. So I'm like gotcha. at a size 15 now. Thanks gotcha. for that. Um, <laughs> but I, I never had the privilege of meeting your parents. Um, mm-hmm. And I've heard, you know, stories about, about them in the community and their involvement in the community and just to hear the way you talk about them. Um, you know, one of my... I'm not, I'm not a very, I don't consider myself to be a deeply religious person. Um, pastor's son, like your father, my father was a pastor, and uh, amongst many other things that he did. And um, one of these, there's one of, one of these, one story from the New Testament that I just am so fond of. It's like, it's, it's got to be, in my opinion, the coolest thing that's ever been said in the history of mankind. So uh, Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate. And Pilate asks him, he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, uh, do you ask me this because that's what you think I am? Or do you ask me this because that's what others have told you I am? And Pilate, now keep in mind, y'all, listen, I'm paraphrasing. All right? Do not take me to task for getting this wrong. Um, and so Pilate says, why do I care? I'm not a Jew. And Jesus says, I came to give testimony to the truth. And then Pilate says to him, well, what is the truth? And Jesus said, any man who hears the truth hears my voice. And in the hood, in the ghettos where I come from, we also have a phrase to describe that, and it's called real recognizes real, you know? The thing is, like, I love my father tremendously. Um, was inspired by him. Everything I am or ever will be, I owe to that man. His sacrifices that he made in his life for my future 
um, were not in vain. And when I hear you talk about your parents, I have that emotional counterpoint. I can feel it because I know what that feels like. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just really tremendous and remarkable because it's like, you know, Larry, I look at you, you know, you're, you're older than me. You're, you're, the, you're my boss at the, at the newspaper. You know, you're like super accomplished. You've done all these things. And then I talk to you and you're so human. It's almost as if you didn't, like you were just, it's like, I don't even know the word to describe. I'm getting all emotional over here. Now, uh, I, I do I do love the insights, you know, that, that behind the scenes part, though. Because what, what the public probably never saw were the conversations, the, the tears that happened in the house. Oh, yeah. Um, what were some of the news stories that, that have happened, like, in your time, not as the publisher, but when you were younger and your parents were... Uh, Ron the Observer, what were some of the more prominent news stories that, that, that made it home? Um, you know, I think, so I was born in 73. Uh, and so there were a few things that were, you know, that predated me or were part of my early childhood. You know, I, I know very clearly, uh, having heard from, you know, firsthand from my folks and, and from others, uh, the dynamic between the Black Panthers and the Observer um, was definitely something that was um, uh, challenged at first because, you know, the, the Panthers felt the Observer wasn't militant enough. Um, and my dad, a wise dude, would just say, you know, look, uh, why don't you uh, pick somebody that you want to be a writer and we'll show them how to write and they'll write about the stuff that you want to write about. Um and so the, the, the challenges that were facing the Panthers, particularly in Oak Park, um, you know, um, was, was definitely an ongoing story, right, uh, f- for us. Um, I think, you know, uh, so I, I mean, I remember very clearly, um, you know, the beating of Rodney King was a big deal for us uh, as a newsroom because... It was kind of that first time captured on video the um, conditions that blacks were facing between law enforcement. Uh, And we knew about it and reported on it, you know, but you never had the proof, right? And then you had, you know, that proof of, you know, these officers beating Rodney King, um, you know, the way they did. Uh, And then them getting off uh, was a big, was a big thing for us um you know i know uh (laughs) the uh ascension for barack obama as president was a a moment very clearly that none of us thought we were going to see um and so that was you know a really big deal and it wasn't so much i mean the man barack obama has proven to be of extremely high character and caliber and, and, you know, you can say whatever you want to about his politics or whatever, but the, the, that Obama family and what they did for, you know, getting into that position and living the way that they did. Um, and, and, you know, as we see it in, in, in the the successors, in in the the administrations that followed, Mm -hmm. you know, it was beyond exceptional. Um, so, you know, seeing that ascension 
and then seeing, honestly, him leaving office and then what followed. Um, you know, those, that um, dynamic of those two polar sort of environments for African-Americans, for us, um, you know, I don't, it's hard to put into words how it, it, it reinforces the importance of local newsrooms and newsrooms like ours, right? Because the national landscape has made us as people and Americans so polarized and technology, social media has made us so polarized. People are so, they, they are leaning on their worst selves, right? They are so, I don't want to say evil, but people are evil on social media. They are rude. They are on, they're not thoughtful and, and considerate. Um, and this polarization has been awful. And I think that that's one of the things that, um, we feel our role is in, in trying to help connect us, connect to the humanity of all of us. We want people to see African-Americans as humans and, and, and have humanity. And so fast forward to even the, the events of the last couple of weeks with Tyree Nichols, the idea of black men beating another black man like that is so heartbreaking. Um, but you know it's also part of the system of policing and the conditions of hurt people hurting people. You watch that, you can't, I mean, I know you, I, I, and we was off air, but you mentioned, um, you know, sometimes people, um, get, well, you mentioned on air, uh, the tough love, mm -hmm. right? And we as a people ha seem to only know tough love because we've been given tough love by ourselves, by our own people. Sometimes we've been the hardest on each other because of what is out there. But what we, what we saw for that was not that. That wasn't tough love. That was just, that was, that was, that was violence. That was, that was hate by your own people. And so, you know, that sort of occurring. And, and the, the sad thing is that I fear is that that type of, that, that what we saw with Tyree Nichols is going to have a shelf life and is going to, you know, it, it won't. So that's the, that's the uniqueness thing. And I'll bring this um, currently. I, I, and I, I remember, uh, you know, my dad, he passed away in 2019. He was heartbroken when when Trump was elected. He was absolutely heartbroken. Um, but he, I think what he saw, he saw that polarization coming um, and what it was doing to us as a country. And so when you, and I'll, this is the last one I'll mention, the killing of George Floyd is such a crystallized moment for this country that it is unfortunate that we lost that man and that family lost that person. But I also feel like, you know, his life was not going to be left in vain and that changes are going to come. Ch some changes have happened. Changes, I think, will come. Um, but, you know, it's on us to not let those stories die. 
and not let those moments go away. And so we've got it. We've it's we've got to stay on top of that kind of stuff for us as a news organization. I don't know if I answered your question. No, you you did more than <laughs> answer the question actually, and you you made a really good point about you you actually just demonstrated the necessity of having our own news outlets because like you said these these things one you know with the with with Tyree Nichols one of the things that that came out almost immediately was like we don't want people to be desensitized to this kind of thing yeah because it happens so frequently then as you said you know it has a shelf life it'll it'll filter through the news a couple of cycles and then it's on to the next thing you know now it's the weather balloon (laughs) right and um and the same with the history of our people in this country. A lot of our history, a lot of our stories have been passed mouth to ear. It has been incumbent on us to preserve our own history. Absolutely. Um, elseways, it would be it would be suppressed and and blended into um, what 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 some people would refer to as a uh, alternate facts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and and it's in this moment listening to you that I actually genuinely understand one of the core functions that independent news outlets have is because you have the ability to, to, to carry on that conversation long after the national outlets yeah. have stopped talking about it. Um, and then to speak truth to it, like to, to not only say this is what happened, but this is what's still happening and we're going to tell you about it. I think that on the one hand, um, it's in terms of an overall change, like nationally in in our condition, it is beneficial that we have visible records of these things that are happening to our people. I don't necessarily encourage people, especially with like Tyree Nichols, to watch the videos. Having a description of it should be sufficient. but it's easy to it's easy to make that seem like a distant part of history when it's not able to be seen. And I grew up, um, well, let's just say I'm a lot younger than you. Uh, and when I grew up uh, in D.C., for the first decade or so of my life, racism was always taught as a thing of the past. That, like, once Dr. King got killed, everybody came together and said, this isn't good. And then Vietnam happened and people went after the government. And, you know, and then it's just been kumbaya ever since then. And in D.C., it's very easy to feel that way when the mayor's black yeah. and the delegate is black and the police chief is black and you're not, you know. And then you come to California, land of the free, like 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 that. This is this is the America of America. And uh, then you start to really understand what your people are going through. Out, Oh, a lot like Moses, actually. I think I imagine, not not likening myself to Moses, but I can understand him a bit better now because the whole time I was in D.C., it was like Moses living with the Pharaoh. And then he discovered that he was actually a Hebrew and then saw the, the, the condition of his people and was like, something needs to happen. And that's kind of been my journey, was like in D.C., I'm like, oh, that's not my fight. And then here, oh, not, not only is that my fight, but I need all of y'all. We have to watch each other's backs because we have a genuine threat that faces us as, as a whole. Um, so I definitely understand now the importance of, of why we need outlets that are specific to our various communities and, 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 and cultural things. Um, 
I mean, there's just so much to unpack <laughs> what you said. I could go, I mean, so many parts I could go into with, with uh, the difference between Barack Obama, Donald Trump, George Floyd. Um, the, what do you believe, Larry? Would what needs to happen for for assuming that there's no silver bullet that's going to stop black people from being persecuted, beaten? Because it's not. We have to tell the truth about it. We saw what happened with George Floyd. We saw what happened with Rodney King. We saw what happened with, with Tyree Nichols. 60 years ago, we saw the same thing with fire hoses and dogs. 60 years before that, we saw the same thing with people being lynched. 60 years before that, they were in chains. 60 years, you see what I mean? 60 years before that, they were getting thrown off of boats. Like, so it's not that there's something new happening that, that hasn't mm-hmm. been happening all the time. It's only now that we actually see it as opposed to hear about it. What would be, in your opinion, because I think that you you probably have one of the broadest views of any person that I would encounter by being not only a person who grew up during a lot of these times and saw it from different ages, but then having your parents' background and the experiences they went through that they shared with you and then being in the press and reporting on the different experiences of people. Um, what do you think would need, what do you think should happen, needs to happen for our people to be safe in society? Uh, verbal. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know how to answer that. Um, so this would be the first thing I would say is there needs to be an atonement by this country. Um, you know, if you are an abuser, um, you've abused your loved one, um, you can't move forward in relationship until you have atoned for that abuse. You just can't. It's just the person who has was abused is always going to feel less than. The person who was the abuser is always going to feel a sense of superiority. Um, and even regret, um, possibly, I mean, possibly, hopefully regret. (laughs) Um, so in an abusive relationship, which is what this has been, the relationship between blacks in this country has been abusive and, and it's the, the, the dynamic of this country is that it's also the most amazing country in the, in the world for black people because you can ascend to presidency. You can be a billionaire. You can have an impact on generations that follow. Um, But I think, personally, for this country to ever move past its sins, it has to atone for them. It has to, there has to be some sort of you know, we call it, we call reparations. Reparations is repairing, right? So there's, there's repairing that has to be done, whether you call it financial, whether you call it emotional, um, you know, systemic, whatever those areas are, there has to be complete atonement. And someone has to be able to speak to that. And it has to really be from someone 
outside of our community. It has to be someone who is unafraid of whatever cancel culture or whatever comes at them socially, whatever, through social media or whatever, and be unapologetic and say, what we've done to this community has to be repaired. The, the, I remember talking with um, uh, Governor Newsom in a session once. Uh, it was after George Floyd, actually. And, you know, I very clearly told us what the, the condition for black people is. It's not our fault. That's not our doing. It's the doing of the historically oppressors in this country. And the further we step away from quote-unquote slavery times or civil rights times, those that have been the oppressors feel like all is forgiven. All is not forgiven. All is not okay. Um, and there have to be some serious atonements that have to be done for that. Uh, and that's the first place at start. You know, I'm reminded of a quote by Shakespeare. Um, there you go with Shakespeare. I am, love me some Shakespeare. I know you do. Um, and Hamlet, Polonius, Hamlet's uncle, uh, the man who murdered his father, um, is praying. And he's saying, he's asking, he's like, oh, um, if this hand weren't thicker than itself with brother's blood, forgive me for my foul murder. How can that be? For I'm still possessed of the effects for which I did the murder, my crown, my own ambition, and my queen. And my pastor, Pastor Battle, speaks very similar to what you say is when it comes to like abusive relationships. You cannot truly forgive a person who one does not take account does not take accountability for what they've done, right. because that if they if they can't even admit to what they've done, then that doesn't give me any security that they won't do it again because they never even saw it was wrong. Right. And then second was that um, you are still in possession of the benefits of the crime. Right. To my detriment, and. That has to be reconciled before you see where I'm going with this. Yeah, absolutely. You, you know, Larry, you, you're brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> you laugh, but it's true. You're, you're a brilliant man. You're a great leader. And I genuinely am inspired by you. Um, it, I, I do hate to have to end this so abruptly because we are on a time limit. But, Larry, uh, I am super looking forward to getting you back on the show. Um, before this year is over. I'm going to put this on the air so that now you're kind of locked into it. Um, I'm definitely super forward to looking uh, to having you back on the show. Um, I'm interested in just learning about what uh, initiatives you have and finding a way to be helpful. Um, for those of you interested, um, the SAC Observer's website is sacobserver.com. Um, the Observer is also purchasable in Safeway, Rayleigh's, um, Underground Books over in Oak Park. You can pick up a copy or you can Stop past the Observer offices in Del Paso Heights and uh, pick up an autographed copy of the Observer. <laughs> Not an autographed copy. If you, show up, if you show up on Fridays at 2 p.m., I will be there to sign autographs. Okay, there you go. Right. Um, and then uh, other than that, the Observer's Print Weekly comes out on Fridays. Um, stay tuned with all of the initiatives. Larry, thank you so much for uh, being here on the show with me. Thank you for your contributions to the community. 
Um, and thank you for the opportunities that you provide to people who might not otherwise have had them. Um, now I'm getting all emotional, so I'm just going to end this. Thank you all for tuning in to Verbal Radio, um, and we'll catch you on the next episode.